Let's pray one more time. Father, as we approach the words of our Lord Jesus, we ask you again to make them real in our situation. They're very applicable for all times because there's dangers as Christians and as churches to fall into a pattern that is unholy and destructive and mere religion. We don't want to do that. We ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. So, this morning we're coming to a really important matter. Um, Matthew chapter 23 is totally unique in the three gospels, uh, the four gospels, I mean, of, with the other three. There's no parallels to this chapter in Mark or Luke or John. I shouldn't say no parallels. I think there's two sentences in Matthew 23 that appear in Mark and Luke, um, but that's it. And there's a reason Matthew includes this long section and the others don't, and um, mainly it's because of who he's writing to. Luke is writing to the Gentiles, and Mark is kind of focused on Roman Gentiles, and Matthew's writing to his fellow Jews. And to them, the Pharisees were the spiritual leaders of their community. They were the go-to people. They were the spiritual guides. They were ministers worth following. They taught and guarded the sanctity of the law of Moses, or that's what people believed. So as you read the Gospels, you know that Jesus was in conflict with the Pharisees a lot. And there's always sort of a tension and a battle going on. And they hated him. They hated him. Um, Mainly for exposing their hypocrisy. I mean, Jesus called them actors. And nobody likes to be called an actor when they're being all serious about something, especially spiritual things, right? You're, You're just acting. Um, they were far more about reputation, the Pharisees, earthly reputation. Every human being should be concerned about their reputation with God above all things. And that wasn't their focus. They were concerned about their reputation with other people, with men. So, although this whole chapter is about the Jews and their particular experience with the Pharisees, we can learn a lot. Spiritual authority is a necessity in God's order of things in a fallen world. And in many ways, ministers of the church have the same kind of relationship to you that the Pharisees had to the people of Israel. Um, All humans are subject to the same weaknesses and sins, right? So... A pharisaical weakness is not something we don't ever have to confront or deal with. That can be us. So we want to pay attention to what he has to say here. Matthew 23 is a great opportunity for Christians to evaluate their relationship to ministers in the church and for ministers in the church to evaluate their relationship with the people they're to oversee uh, for the gospel's sake. So a big question is, what are we supposed to do with ministers anyway? Other than Pastoral Appreciation Month, which is great. (laughs) What are we supposed to do with our spiritual leaders? I mean, seriously, what, what, what is that all about? I mean, they're all imperfect. I, even I, am not perfect. I mean, should they be disregarded for their imperfections? Um, where does that come into play? How do all these things work out? What should they themselves, what should ministers and elders and leaders take from the words of Jesus here? And we uh, who lead have an obligation to drink deeply here because the failings of the Pharisees that Jesus points out here are not uncommon in the Christian world and in Christian churches. The great bishop, one of my heroes, J.C. Ryle, said of Matthew 23, he said, so long as the world stands, this chapter 
ought to be a warning and a beacon to all ministers of religion. No sins are so sinful as theirs in the sight of Christ. And he's right about that because when you hold an office for God, your, your sins are counted by him as worse than other people's just because of the example that you need to set. Now, that's not to say anybody else's sins aren't, aren't important, but ours are doubly important. And it's supposed to be that way. It should be that way. That's why there's these rigorous standards for elders and deacons in the New Testament, um, the shepherds of the flock. And that's why James says in his little letter, James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. So that is always over our heads as leaders of the flock. Phariseeism is always a lurking danger as well. Uh, the spirit of it, the thinking and the motives of the heart behind the Pharisees. A, a Christian Pharisee should be a total contradiction in terms. You shouldn't know any Christian Pharisees. But there are some. In fact, there's probably too many. I know there are. And it can easily find a home in the church, um, Pharisaical thinking. Because we're human, and we're all liable to the same weaknesses and failures of the flesh. So Jesus has to talk about it. Um, there's a lot here for us. And Matthew wants Jesus' words permanently inscribed in this great gospel for his people for all generations so that we will always in every generation reflect on what Jesus is criticizing here and what he's attacking so that that's not us. We don't want this to be us. He wants his, he wants his people free of the way of the Pharisee. That's what Christ wants for the church. So remember, Pharisees are... They're people of the book. They're the fundamentalists. They're the conservatives. They're the evangelicals without the evangel, you know, without the gospel. But um, they profess to be all about Scripture. And we should be all about Scripture. But not like them. Not like them. People who say they're all about the Bible and seem to know it may not be all about it at all. Even if they can quote it forwards and backwards. Because if it doesn't get in their heart the core truths of the Bible, it's meaningless, it's useless. So what is the fundamental problem of the Pharisaical mind? Well, basically it's pride and self-focus, uh, spiritual pride. It's, it's religion as performance, about being seen as holy, more concerned with the approval of men than the approval of God. And everybody in ministry has to face that because everybody wants to be popular and well-liked. And when you have to stand for something, it's not going to be well-liked. You don't want to do it. But their, their particular case was much worse than that. They, they lived for that. That's, that was their whole heart. What do people think about me? And a Christian leader can never get into that mode. And that's, a, that's a tragic trajectory for um, anybody in any kind of leadership to want, worry about that or think about that or want to put on airs or, or anything like that. Um, the fundamental sin of being more concerned about what people think than what God thinks is a common sin amongst religious people. Often unconverted people, but Christians that have lost their way get into that too. They minimize, this is one of the ways you can tell somebody's in this mode. They minimize their own sins and maximize other people's sins. That's one of the fruits that comes out of that man-centered thing. They want to be really careful that they always have reasons for what they did wrong and 
Other people have really big sins. They're horrible, even if they're small sins. And that's what the Pharisees did. And they do that in their own minds. And sometimes they even verbalize it. You know, it comes out. They're justifying themselves and attacking other people that have done less than they have. So their sins are small or non-existent. Other people's sins are disgusting and big. So we have this lengthy discourse given to us so we will be able to distinguish or discern the Pharisaic error creeping into the church of Christ and into our own hearts. That's what this is for. So let's, um, before we start, let me just give you a little refresher on the Pharisees in case you haven't been around lately. The Pharisees were an association or a brotherhood of men seeking to live this earnest and strict religious life. And the ancient historian, there was a Jewish historian of some note during the Apostle Paul's life or in the first century, just right after the time of Christ. And he describes the Pharisees in some detail. He was somewhat sympathetic towards them. And he said there were 6,000 of them basically at his time throughout the nation of Israel. Israel probably had a population of couple million, something like that. But these 6,000 Pharisees were highly respected, highly regarded as the go-to people to, to hear teaching and to know the law of God and to follow in an earnest way. So that's who they basically were. Most Pharisees were lay people. They, were, they had jobs. They had run a business or had some kind of trade. And uh, they just devoted all of their extra time to these religious matters of Judaism. Some were scribes, some were professional theologians, experts in the law, the traditions of the rabbis. The Pharisees loved to make rules. That's their favorite thing to do, and talk about rules. And we have their writings, and you know when it says in the Bible that Jesus spoke with authority, not like the Pharisees? You know when it says that? Not like the rabbis? It's because they're always saying, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Jesus never once quoted a rabbi, <laughs> ever. He only looked to scripture. That's our model. But you, Christians can fall into that kind of a thing too. But um, they did it to, to decide what the rules were gonna be. And they saw their purpose in life as continuing and protecting the law of Moses. So they added to the law of Moses all kinds of little rules. In their mind, it was sort of a hedge to protect people from violating it. So, you know, if you make extra rules and you keep those rules, you'll never go so far as to actually violate one of the commandments. One of them was like, don't use the Lord's name in vain, and nobody ever used God's name ever. Right? That's why you don't see anybody saying, even in the New Testament it's written that way. The word Yahweh is, is translated Lord. The word Lord substitutes for God's name, even in the Greek New Testament, because Jews were so used to never saying it, and that's how they were, they were raised. So that's, that's an example of a hedge. Well, if I never say Yahweh, I can't blaspheme his name. It's kind of a silly thing, because you can blaspheme God's name by being a rotten Jew or a bad Christian, right? You know, if people see you acting in a sinful manner, that blasphemes God's name, but they, don't, they were thinking of it in a very literal way. But they were the proper interpreters of Moses and the true spiritual authority in Israel. And we know from the New Testament that some of them were quite earnest and sincere, uh, like Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. But um, not most. And that was not the common lot of these, these individuals. Mainly they were into self-glorification. So Jesus begins his warning in verse 1 with um, these general principles Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. So this is quite open. He's in the temple. It's the last week of his life. Saying, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do. 
and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. So here you see why it's so important to address the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And uh, when Laura and I were tooling around in uh, Turkey and, and Greece, we visited some ancient synagogues that had been uncovered. And there's actually a chair of Moses that was in the synagogues that was used as this place to sort of speak forth, you know, and say his thing. Kind of represented Moses' presence in the... In the and they, they were representing Moses to the people, the law of Moses, which people were supposed to obey, of course. So... They claimed for themselves this authority to teach and to interpret and to pass down these traditions concerning the law. And that's a huge responsibility. And the Babylonian Talmud, which is like an encyclopedia-sized record of rabbinical writings from that time, uh, an ancient work, it says says in the Babylonian Talmud, Moses received the law at Sinai, handed it down to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to the men of the great synagogue. So it's a direct line from Moses to them. And the great synagogue was a a council of 120 rabbis that legend says happened during the time of Ezra. We don't know if that happened or not, but may have, may have. So they're the keepers of that tradition, making sure Israel did not deviate from Moses like it did do before they were taken away into captivity. I mean, for for a thousand years they disobeyed Moses. And after the captivity, when they finally came back and Ezra and Nehemiah started working it, they started being at least externally conforming to the law of Moses. And they're, they're guarding that. That's a very worthy task. That's a good thing to keep the law of Moses before the people. That's, that's not bad, that's good. Um, it's not unlike our duty today to be faithful in the church to the New Testament and the gospel and um, the teachings of Christ and all the apostles. They, they were the guardians of the law and we are the protectors of the scripture as well. It's the same, same idea there. So as far as they did that, uh, kept the law of Moses before the people and encouraged its obedience, Jesus was right there with them. As long as that's what they were doing, Jesus is with them. Jesus did not want a Jewish society drifting away from the law of Moses. And these guys were the ones that were most prolific in maintaining the law of Moses before people. So that's good. That's a good thing. Jesus fully supported the law of Moses. So he says, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. That's that's kind of a surprise, huh? Because they were so mean to Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is so perfect. He, He acknowledges what they did right. It's not personal animosity with them that wants him to shut them down. The fact that these men are the recognized authorities of the faith of Israel means that their position, sitting in the chair of Moses, should be respected, especially as they put forth the law of Moses, because that was what God commanded them to obey. So he doesn't say they're utterly worthless and should be ignored altogether. He doesn't say they should be held in contempt. As they faithfully communicated the law of Moses, they should be listened to and heard. He's honoring them that far. So it's a much more um, nuanced grasp of the Pharisees than we might expect since many of them hated Jesus so much, but Jesus is very careful not to advocate some kind of revolution against the Pharisees. And as much as we might despise the Pharisees being very righteous Christians reading the New Testament, Jesus would not ask us to despise them. Do what they say, 
he tells people. There's a clear level of honor he believes they should be accorded. So don't forget that, that he said that. I've never heard many, well, I haven't heard any sermons on that. Whatever the Pharisees say, do that. You don't hear a lot of talks like that. But they should be honored as far as their position goes and what they're trying to accomplish goes. And as far as they're presenting the law of Moses, they should be listened to. That's okay. But he's quite clear, all the rest of the chapter, their whole approach to it is profoundly flawed, deeply flawed, and they're a mess. So uh, he's not gonna say they're a mess um, specifically, (laughs) he's gonna describe their mess, and it's amazing. Um, So he goes on, uh, do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Do what they say, but not what they do, because what they do is contrary to everything spiritual leadership stands for. The whole spirit of Phariseeism is contrary to the spirit of genuine faith and obedience to God, being God-centered. The heart of the Pharisee is what he's addressing, and that really starts to show up in verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They burden people. Now, some people will feel burdened anytime you go to them and say, hey, you know, the Bible says you should do this, you need to obey that. Oh, I'm so burdened. No, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. These burdens are man-made burdens that they're adding on to what God's commands are. They have a curious delight in using their authority to make life hard, oppressively hard. They make rules where rules are completely unnecessary. And the picture really is of a beast of burden just being so loaded, he's starting to bend down under the weight of it, and and any rational person with a mule or an animal in that condition would take off some of the load, but they won't lift a finger to take some of that load off. They want people to be under that load. So the load never gets lighter. These legalists, these externalists, they spend their time thinking of limits, more limits, more rules, not freedom, not a heart for God, just more rules to obey. So in every generation it gets worse, more rules, more limits. And it's hard for us to imagine how every area of life was minutely controlled by the regulations of the Pharisees. I mean, it's hard to grasp how profound that was, so so people couldn't do it. But they did, at least they said they did. Keep the little rules, and that made them superior. Let me give you some examples. Like I said, the Babylonian Talmud is is like an encyclopedia size of rules, of different rabbis' opinions about this or that. First of all, let me tell you what Moses said. Let's, Let's take the Sabbath, for example. There's a whole volume of the Babylonian Talmud, it's about the Sabbath, I have it at my house. Here's what Moses says, Exodus 29 um, through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is the Ten Commandments, right? Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's the law. Don't work on the Sabbath. The question is, what is work? What is work? Now, if you get together a room full of guys that just love to make rules, they're going to decide that everything is work, right? 
I mean, Moses meant it in the way we all think of work. In fact, the only example of somebody being punished for breaking the Sabbath in the Old Testament during Moses' life was a guy that was collecting wood. He was out working. That's work, right? But the Talmud goes a little bit farther than that. Here's, here's some examples. How much hair can you cut with scissors on the Sabbath? Here's what it says. One who removes a scissor full of hair on Shabbat is liable. And how much is a scissor full? It is two hairs. <laughs> Rabbi Eliezer says one hair. And the rabbis concede to Rabbi Eliezer in the case of one who removes white hairs from the black hairs. Even if he removes one hair, he is liable. Don't pluck a gray hair on the Sabbath. That's work. Since his intent was to remove that particular hair, its removal constitutes a complete action. The Gemara adds, as for, and for a man, that matter is prohibited even during the week due to the fact that it is stated, neither shall a man don a woman's garment. Deuteronomy 22.5. You're thinking, what is not wearing a woman's garment have to do with plucking a gray hair. It tells you. <laughs> Removal of the white hairs for the purposes of beautification is characteristic of women, and it is prohibited for a man to perform those actions. That's pretty femme to do that. <laughs> so you're prohibited all week. Men, you just had to have gray hair. That's it. <laughs> so guys, we may never pluck a gray hair because the law forbids you from wearing women's clothing. It's simple. It's a natural consequence of that law. How about a woman fixing her hair or putting on makeup? A woman who applies eyeshadow is liable due to, the, due to dying. Now, that's not dying like death. It's like dying clothes, you know, like dying a garment. She's dying her eye on the Sabbath. That's work because there's a law against dying. One who braids her hair and applies blush is liable due to the prohibition against building. <laughs> the Gemara asks about this, and that is the typical, what, is that the typical manner of building? The Gemara answers yes, braiding one's hair is considered building. As Rabbi Shimon ben Minsaya taught, that the verse states, this is a rabbinical interpretation of Genesis chapter two, the Lord built the side that he took from Adam into a woman, which teaches that the Holy One, blessed be he, braided Eve's hair and brought her to Adam. And where it is derived that this is the, where is it derived that this is the meaning of built? It is because in the islands of the sea, they call braiding building. It was taught in a baraita that Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar says, with regard to a woman who braids her hair and who applies eyeshadow or blush on the Sabbath, if she did it for herself, she is exempt. If she did it for another, she is liable. This is because a woman cannot perform these actions for herself in as complete a fashion as she can for someone else. And so too, Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar would say in the name of Rabbi Eleazar, a woman may not apply rouge to her face on Sabbath because by doing so she is dying, which is one of the prohibited labors on this Shabbat. So um, imagine thousands and thousands of rules like this to govern your entire life. There are whole volumes written about this, everything in life, and it's a burden. That's a burden. So there's a rabbinical discussion in the Talmud about whether you can pluck a flower from a perforated pot or an unperforated pot on the Sabbath, and that's like a really important issue. 
So these are burdens. They're unnecessary burdens. These are burdens that are never made easier, ever, only harder. And that's what Jesus means when he says they never lift a finger. They kept their rules, at least publicly and openly to be seen, but Jesus doesn't say they didn't keep their rules. He says they devoted themselves to making rules and they would never undo them. Far more, far more rules than the law of God has. So what they didn't do was live the spirit that breathes through the law of Moses, which is personal holiness, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. In Mark chapter seven, Jesus attacks the Pharisees there. He says, neglecting the commandments of God, you hold to the traditions of men. See, they actually were so focused on their own rules, they were neglecting God's rules. The actual commandments, they weren't thinking through or paying attention to. He was also saying to them, this is in Mark chapter seven, verse nine, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, that is given to God. I'm sorry, I've dedicated, dedicated all my money to God. You can't have it in your poor old age. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down and you do many such things as that, Jesus says. Your traditions are actually contrary to the law of Moses. Many things, in many ways, they made a way out of obeying clear commandments of Moses and acted like they were being holy while they did it. So we saw in Matthew chapter 19 how the Pharisees made a sham out of this sacred institution of marriage by allowing divorce for any reason. And the Bible doesn't allow divorce for any reason. They abuse scripture to toss aside something profound and deep and real that a man and a woman become one flesh when they're married, the bond of marriage. The real problem with most of the Pharisees was why they did what they did. It's this desire to be seen, this pride, that this super religiosity and rule making was to feed their egos. And, and pride is the number one sin. That's the killer sin. That's what started it all. That's the source of sin. It's the foundation of evil. And they seemed godly, but only externally. They wanted to be seen as godly, so they really carefully cultivated this godly persona. And I know people that do that when their hearts are totally twisted against obedience to God, but they put on this they use religious language and talk about Jesus and all kinds of stuff. They wanted to be seen as super pious and nobody could keep their rules. So people honored them as super holy. Who could be more pious than a Pharisee who gave every moment to the service of God and who knew the laws so well? Well, look at verse 5, 23, 5. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. It was a show. You know what phylacteries are? I put a thing in the bulletin about that. That's when you, so the law of Moses says to bind God's laws on your hand and, and on your forehead, which means think about it and always be aware of it in whatever you do. But they took it super literally, so they actually built these leather thong things to strap verses on their arms and they had a box on their head. Orthodox Jews still do this today. A box on their head that they wore on the Sabbath for prayers or, or every morning when they did their prayers and had the scroll in there and they 
tied it onto their heads. It's a kind of a weird practice based on Deuteronomy 6.8. But Moses said, you shall bind them on, as a sign on your hand, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. So they started doing that, and in in, by the first century they were doing it. And Jesus, just probably growing up, noticed something about the Pharisees. Their phylacteries were thicker and wider. Why, why would that be? So people could see them wearing it's more holy, better, and they wore them on the Sabbath. To be seen by men, he says, to be thought more spiritual than other people. That's what they wanted. Tassels were commanded to be worn by Jewish men in the law of Moses, Numbers 15.37, to remind them to keep God's laws. Because So um, if you've got tassels hanging off your, your garment, and you, and you see them all the time, they're, they're a constant reminder that you're supposed to be a law-abiding, God-honoring people. That's what they were for. Numbers 15, it says, it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So it's something physical, a constant reminder of God's keeping God's laws. Jesus wore them too. If you remember, we don't have any pictures of Jesus, but you remember the, the, the sick woman who snuck up behind him and touched the tassel. She wanted to touch the tassel of his garment. So Jesus wore them. He's a law keeper. It's part of the law of God. But the Pharisees, their tassels were longer. They were longer. More holy, more noticeable. Why? To be seen by men. They wanted everyone to know they were special, more holy, more sanctified. They lived religiously, but not for God. They lived religiously so people would think of them as, as, as holy and special and different. And verse six, they also liked favored treatments. They loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. So they enjoy all these social privileges, prestige, and respect. And the horror of that is that while they were lapping up the praise of men, these earthly honors, God saw them as unrighteous men, those who violated the heart of the law while keeping all these little external extra rules. So God's looking at hypocrisy, and they're sitting in the chief seats at banquets and being honored and people bowing down to them in the street and calling them master and all of those kind of things. It's amazing. Pride and hypocrisy, those are the deadliest combinations a human being can have, spiritually speaking. Fatal, fatal. But people did honor them, and they got exactly what they wanted. The respect of men. People thought they were godly. But when the law really mattered, when love required big sacrifices, they didn't do it. They didn't take care of their aging parents. They didn't work on their marriages. They just kicked their wives out. They were disdainful of sinners and looked down on them. They couldn't see it. They, they were, were so vain. Verse 7, the respectful greetings in the marketplaces, being called rabbi by men. Rabbi means like master, like, uh, like not a slave owner so much as like a teacher or master, you know. Um, Alfred Edersheim, who's a Jewish convert to Christianity, wrote an incredibly wonderful book in the 1800s called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's very worth having. But he said, rabbinic writings lay down elaborate directions what place to be assigned to the rabbis according to their rank 
and to their disciples and how in the college the most learned but at the feast the most aged among the rabbis are to occupy the upper seats. So weighty was the duty of respectful greetings by the title rabbi that to neglect it would invite the heaviest punishment. People love honors. They love grand titles. And you know Jesus teaches us to deal with this problem by some really simple and straightforward instructions which follow. Verse 8. Do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, except your dad. (laughs) For one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. It's amazing all the titles that entered into common usage in the Christian church down through the centuries. It's just, it's amazing. I mean, priests are called father, in exact direct opposition to this commandment. What does the word Pope mean? Father. Holy Father. The Eastern Orthodox churches have patriarchs. What is a patriarch? Father. And they're called that. He says, don't do that. Verse 8, you're all brothers. Period. End of story. You shouldn't kiss feet or rings or Prostrate yourself down on the ground before men. Ministers in Christ's church should have the same honor given to all brothers as brothers. Nothing more than that. And evangelicals think we're above this stuff, but we're not. We're not. You see it all the time. Turn on the TV. See the guys wearing the, you know, the clerical collars, calling themselves bishops and apostles when they have like, there's no ecclesiastical basis for that. They're just making it up and giving themselves grand titles. Back when I was... Back when I had a book in the works many, many years ago, the publisher said, do you want me to call you Reverend Wilson or Pastor Wayne Wilson in your materials? And I go, uh, Pastor's fine, or you could leave it off. And she said, well, do you want everything to say Pastor Wayne Wilson every time your name is mentioned? I go, no, it doesn't matter about that. And she said, well, some people get really angry if we don't use their titles. And I said, really? <laughs> oh, Yes. Even speaking to them, if I don't say doctor so-and-so, they get really angry. Why is that person writing a book? Why would somebody so spiritually impoverished be writing a Christian book? I mean, that's amazing that that would even happen. Can you imagine somebody being angry because you didn't call them doctor so-and-so? That's pretty sad. And that's sin. To get angry over that with a human being about your title... That's, that's pure Phariseeism. Now, I'm all for calling doctors doctors when they're real doctors. If they're medical doctors, I call them doctors. If they have an earned doctorate and they're teaching in a seminary or a college, I'll call them doctor in an academic setting. But we should not be seeking personal glory. It's empty. None of us should. None of us should be doing that. But especially people in ministry should not be doing that. It used to be when Christians founded a school or founded a college or founded a hospital, they would name it after God, Trinity College or something like that, right? You know, some spiritual name, Jesus. You know, you can go to like Oxford and stuff. They have Jesus College and things like that in those universities. Now people name them after themselves. Some big evangelist builds a university and calls it after himself. No, but no, who, who would do that? We're not supposed to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing and we're naming institutions after ourselves. Now look, if you've been dead for a couple hundred years and somebody wants to name something after you, that's okay. 
There's Calvin College. Calvin deserves a college. But he would have freaked out if somebody named Calvin College after him when he was alive. Freaked out. That's a technical theological word. (laughs) Martin Luther, I grew up in the Lutheran church. Martin Luther said, the first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans. (laughs) But Christians, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 3 would not tolerate Christians calling themselves Pauls or Peters, but only Christians. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, (laughs) that's a very Lutheran way to talk, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? He's exactly right. He's exactly right. Don't follow leaders who exalt themselves. Really pay attention to that. You can tell. Don't do that. That's dangerous. Be very careful about celebrity and personality in the church. That's the world's thing, and I've seen way too much of it. And we live in this, we look, listen, we live in the age of entertainment. So celebrity is everything. And that's, whatever's going on in the world finds its way into the church. And we live in the age of entertainment, so church is all about entertainment and celebrity. It's the same thing. And it's got to go. Can't do that. These words are really practical regarding church leaders and their titles, church leaders and what they wear, church leaders and how they're honored. And I think it even touches on architecture and interior decorating. I really do. I mean, I've been asked to speak in churches where I was sat on a throne. And I wasn't doing anything. I was just sitting there while the service went on. I mean, what, what's that about? Why a throne? Who am I? Well, I am a poor stinking bag of maggots. That's what I am. <laughs> Why are you putting a guy with my evil name on a throne, right? Now, I have to say, churches do have leaders. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls. That's a command of scripture. Don't call them leaders, but that's what they are. They are leaders. There are men who make decisions and lead and guide the flock. There are men who lay hands that we lay hands on and mark out for a position of authority and we make ourselves accountable to their wisdom and leadership, especially group leadership because one person could be off, but a group of godly men are going to give you solid counsel and advice. Leadership is essential in the church. What should motivate them? What should be in their hearts? Jesus says, verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So servanthood is the driving principle in the heart of godly ministers and how they conduct themselves. Servants don't sit on thrones. Servants don't need titles. Servants don't expect the best places at banquets. Christ's leader wants the name of Jesus exalted, not his own name exalted. He serves not for the praise of men, nor for the approval of the world. He serves the king, and all he cares about is the king, and the king's commands, and his word. That's what his life is all about. He wants the king honored. What servant stands in front of the king, and has people look at him while the king's standing there? Who does that? The guy that's going to lose his head does that. (laughs) Vanity and pride have no place in Christianity in the church. Don't put pastors on pedestals, no matter how gifted they are. 
but a nice little appreciation card, that's fine. <laughs> Let me go back to J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop, one more time, who, who was in a church full of unbelieving ministers, but he was a hero. He said, we must be very careful that we do not insensibly give to ministers a place and an honor which do not belong to them. We must never allow them to come between ourselves and Christ. The very best are not infallible. They are not priests who can atone for us. They are not mediators who can undertake to manage our soul's affairs with God. They are men of like passions with ourselves, needing the same cleansing blood, the same renewing spirit, set apart to a high and holy calling, but still, after all, only men. Let us never forget these things. Such cautions are always useful. Human nature would always rather lean on a visible minister than an invisible Christ. And that's, that's the great danger. Take that warning to heart. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he does say this, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So appreciate, yes, but realize that you are appreciating mere mortals, bags of maggots, with all the frailties of other men. And ministers and elders and leaders need to know that about themselves, even more so. So like all encouragement, I, I, um, I love to hear it. I mean, I love to be encouraged. I love it when somebody comes up to me and says, oh, you've helped me understand the Bible. That makes me so happy. If I see somebody come to the Lord because of something, I was an instrument of something, that makes me really happy. I love to be encouraged, and we should encourage each other, always encourage each other. But only Christ and the Holy Spirit can do what God's Word wants to have happen in a life. We don't do that. So don't exalt the servants of Christ. His servants are most happy when you exalt Him. That's what makes us happy. If a person's happy with you exalting them, they're not serving Christ. Okay, we're done for today. Jesus isn't done with the Pharisees. He's just getting started. Uh, it's, his, it's the time for truth about the Pharisees. He's going to pronounce eight woes on them. So woe is not how you stop a horse. It's, it's a curse being pronounced. W-O-E, woe. We'll look at, that, look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great warning, a description of what true leadership is like, and none of us do it the way we should all the time. We're all weak and fail and falter. But here's the standard set. And when we look for leaders for our churches, may we look for men like he's describing, servants of yours, not Pharisees. And let us fear Pharisaical attitudes in our own minds and hearts. Let us fear external religion. Let us fear neglecting the great commandments, the clear commandments, so we can put on a show. People might even convince themselves that they're holy because they put on a good show, but never let us think that, blast that out of our hearts by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.